The stories of some of the world's greatest women unfold here. I am Annette Comer, your host, to each week the untold secrets of success, strength, and boldness of today's powerful women are revealed. Today's woman grew up in the Yellowstone Park version of Ireland. Her family never had much money, but to her, she had everything she needed. As a young woman, she came to believe that Ireland was in the Dark Ages, so she went to Scotland to become a nurse. However, in her postgraduate studies, she focused on print, TV, and radio, and at the age of 30, became the CEO of a publishing company. As her life unfolded, it became full of twists and turns. She appeared on top TV shows and eventually had her own show. And through all of it, there was a reoccurring theme to support and advance women. Today, she walks a path to greatness as she elevates girls and teenagers while they're also looking for the one woman who can make a difference. It is my pleasure to introduce you to Nora Casey. Hi, Nora. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Inash. No pressure there and the most powerful women in the world. Uh, thank you for that lovely introduction. I feel ancient now. <laughs> oh, come on now. Yeah, yeah, and I have no doubt you did this role beautifully. We have such a little time together, so let's jump right on in. There was a point in time where you were an acting CEO. You told me that you felt you were terrible at it. So looking back, were you really that bad? And how did you get better as a leader? Yeah, I was really that bad. I I actually was asked recently, give me the worst boss and the best boss you ever had. And I said the worst boss was myself. I think because when you are very good at what you do as a discipline or a profession, so I was actually very good at what I was doing in terms of editorial director, acquiring, launching, building. Then suddenly people say, now you can be the boss of everything. And you're used to doing all the things you're great at. So you still want to cling on to that. And you're not entirely sure what you should be doing as CEO. It's a very big company. I knew everybody, you know, as in I was a team person, you know, before I was the boss. I had a tendency to not make decisions. I used to go around the table endlessly what do you think? And, and what do you think? And do you have a view? So they used to say my indecision was final. So <laughs> I think it it came to a head very soon after I sat in the big fat office, the corner office in the sky. And there was a man working in one of our production departments who was not pulling his weight. Let's just put it that way. He was coming in late. He was leaving his work for other people to do. I had all my senior team shuffling into me one morning and I was, what's going on here? <laughs> and then they all said, Well, if you don't deal with them, we will, because all you're doing by not making that difficult decision to discipline them or start the disciplinary process, you're leaving all of us to do the work. So, you know, it's deeply unfair. And I did on on the way home that night, I gave myself a bit of a harsh talking to and said, all your life, education has been key. I left school. I went off to be a nurse. I educated myself. I went into journalism, educated myself when I wanted to do TV. I was back at college again. I'd started my MPhil at the University of Wales, my PhD. Here was I thinking I could just fly by the seat of my pants being a CEO. So I took myself to Ashbridge Management College for two years to do strategic management. And actually, that was a fantastic program because it was a, a practical element. You get locked in for three-month periods, allowed out every second Sunday, I think. But real-life action with other companies, both in the UK and the US. And the the culmination of those two years was spending two months in the US, actually, with a Smith and Nephew scholarship. It defined my life. It actually 
you know, for a good few years, I couldn't imagine not having those folders behind me. You know, all these, I had Ashridge management folders wall to wall. And once you get confident, I think being a CEO, you gradually, that theory is is a great backdrop to my decision-making and finance is a great backdrop to my decision-making, but I'm confident enough to sit without the paperwork. Excellent. Excellent. So, so you prepared yourself to step into that role and you recognized that you were you were not yeah. quite where you needed to be. I've had so many swerves in my career, but education, education and learning has been the foundation for every single thing I've ever done. And I'm still learning. Even in the lockdown, I think I went, hopped on to a Harvard online training thing for behavioral science and educated myself on that. Yeah. <laughs> I get a feeling that you'll be doing that for the rest of your life too. <laughs> I will. <laughs> You're an avid learner. So I'm going to go into the personal space just for a second. So at one point in your life, you were in an abusive marriage. And when you left him, the whole world seemed to open up for you. Share why you think letting go changed everything for you. So with the lens of time, I look back at that period of my life with, um, I suppose I forgive myself for what I always felt was my own failing. I spent nine years in a very violent and abusive um, marriage. I was 23, transitioning from being a nurse to a journalist. And um, he was very wealthy. He was 40, a lot older than me. Um, It was really my first relationship. So I suppose I fell into it, not understanding that some of that controlling behavior was actually not normal and that it was a toxic relationship. He was very violent and I have the physical scars, you know, even to this day, if I smile, I broke quite a few bones in my face here. My my lips go down instead of up and the cameramen are always saying, you know, smile a little bit more, Nora, but it's an embarrassment for me. Leaving him, I had a very violent incident where he took a knife to me and I really thought that he would kill me and he broke lots of ribs and my face was quite disfigured. And it still took me six months to leave him. You know, I think in the rest of my life, I've always been with powerful women, found myself on television programs where people say, what would you do if your partner or your husband had an affair? And they always had these enormously dramatic responses about what they would do, usually some facial disfigurement of the poor man. Um, And I sat there quietly all the time, knowing that I had, you know, nine years during what I can only describe as a very busy 20s to avoid going home. I stayed and allowed somebody to do this to me. I did eventually pluck up the courage to leave him. I, I was living in South London near Wimbledon and I was working in North London. So I had a long journey to contemplate every Friday going home saying, you're going to leave him this weekend. And every Monday being quite tearful going into work, not having left him. And eventually I told my mum, she'd kind of witnessed something when she'd visited. She didn't see the slap, but she saw the red mark on the side of my face. And she tackled me about it. And I told her and she said, you have to leave him. And I packed a very small bag one Friday morning at 5 a.m. All of the speech that I'd written about 50,000 times, not literally 50,000 times, but it felt like that. And I woke him up to tell him I was leaving. And he laughed first and then he started to snore. And I just walked down the steps with my little bag. I had a tiny little red Fiat at the time. You have to remember that women leaving violent relationships, you are fleeing the violence, but you're also in a practical sense. I had no money no money. You know, you don't make a lot of money as a nurse. I was this perpetual student. He had all of the, somehow he had all the money and I had all the debt. Um, I had no finances. I had no savings. I had nowhere to live. I had imagined I would take half the wardrobe with me, but here I was walking away with literally an overnight bag. Um, And I remember driving away and feeling like, I've never felt anything like it. Butterflies in my stomach multiplied by a million. 
I felt like I was driving over a cliff, that my whole world was falling apart. I had nowhere to live. And at the same time, I spoke to my sister because it was a long journey and I'd actually put my coat on backwards and I was worried I would crash. And thankfully, she remembers the conversation. And I kept saying over and over, I'll never let anyone do that to me again. You know, financial independence, you know, something that's been so strong in me for the rest of my life about women, about economic empowerment. No matter what predicament a woman is in, she needs to be financially independent. And I just over in my head kept saying, that'll never happen to me again. I'll earn my own money. I'll stand on my own two feet. Nobody will have the ability to own me. And if I hadn't actually, you know, another question that I answered recently was, what's the day that changed your life? And it was definitely that day. Because from something very dark and very difficult, I actually left him. I had a long recovery. I wasn't a confident person. Anybody who goes into nursing is not confident, just, you know, and and isn't out to make millions. I might have made millions, but I didn't set out in life to do that. I set out to try and make a difference. So I think if I hadn't left him, I would never have met my wonderful second husband, Richard Hannaford, who worked for the BBC, who was by far the love of my life, like, I can't describe it. We never even had a crossword between us. It was a magical marriage. And of course, I was desperate of a child and through IVF, I had three years of IVF, but actually I had just given up after losing twins. And um, lo and behold, uh, without IVF, I had my miracle baby, Dara, who is now 22 and is, you know, the rock of my life. I also would never have gone on to you know, run businesses, to own my own business, to invest in other businesses, to go into Dragon's Den. I think in the US you call it Shark Tank. When I think of all of the things I've done in my life, it's a very harsh and hard message to give to people who go through very dark times that you can actually be better. But I was definitely, you know, in a better place and I did achieve a great deal because of what happened to me. And I think that's beautiful that you were able to turn that. And it shows that anyone that's at a low point in their life and the world may not even know they're at that low point. I think you shared with yeah. me in an earlier conversation that uh, your workplace as a CEO, they had no idea that you were in this dark, dark place in your personal relationship. I'm going to thread this out a little bit further. So during all of that, it certainly took gave a, a hit to your confidence, for sure. And yet to others, you certainly look so confident, especially when you're in the TV room. Everybody thought you had it all together. So how did you bring alignment to what people saw and what you were actually feeling on the inside? Through a wonderful thing called plasticity. (laughs) If I'm on TV and radio, it's actually just me and the microphone. In London in particular, I was presenting for the BBC and there are millions of people watching you. And yes, you're sitting in a studio and I know everybody who's in that studio. They're like my family. I don't feel like I can see the whites of the eyes of the people who are watching me. So I have no nerves. But the first time I got up to speak, I did have that huge red rash, you know, and, you know, my, <laughs> a lump in my throat and dryness in my mouth and an inability to think clearly. You know, I always describe it as like reading Ulysses, you know, James Joyce's favorite book where, you know, I can read Ulysses from now and forever, but I can't read it without the notes because I can take one sentence in and then it slithers out of my brain, you know. That's what happened to me the first few times I spoke. But you know what? I am just a homework girl. I do my homework. If you ever saw me before I do TED Talks, there's yellow stickers all over the mirror in my bathroom. I learn everything. I practice. I go up and down the kitchen. I time myself. I find the sentence that can say a thousand words. You know, I don't have to tell everybody everything about everything. I just have to find a way of communicating, I guess, in a way that makes them understand the point I'm trying to make. So even to this day, 
I wouldn't ever disrespect anyone by walking onto a stage without having done my homework. Yeah, I think that's great advice for anybody in any endeavor that they do, particularly if they're in the public eye. They really need to be aware of that. So as someone like yourself that was in the public eye, because you were on the Dragon Den TV show, uh, which you mentioned earlier, which is like the Shark Tank show in America, you invested in 13 business ventures. So what pros and cons were there from a business and a personal perspective from so much diversity? I'd say one big pro, one big benefit was as time went on, my business was making money. I, you know, I had a businesses across the UK and Ireland. I was living in London, commuting to Dublin, and we were making money. And I didn't really know what to do with that because, you know, there's tax implications and everything else. But I'm also, believe it or not, I live a very simple life. So I just thought rather than spending it on a yacht, I'll put it into other people's businesses. And of course, I was naturally aligned towards other media. So if I was going to invest in anything, it would be buying the amount of magazines I acquired, working in television and documentaries and radios and podcasts. And they're not great investments. They were becoming less and less attractive while I was invested in them. Dragon's Den allowed me to sit in a big armchair with my arms folded, looking cross. And all of these people came in and pitched their ideas. You know, I mean, number one on the con side, it's never the idea, it's the person. So we get literally, firstly, you get a few minutes of them describing their business. I have never met one person who has appeared in Dragon's Den who has told the absolute truth. That's not to say they're liars, (laughs) but they see the opportunity to embellish their business hugely live on air. And even if we don't invest, they see it as a free ad. So, in fact, there's always millions to be had and it's a billion dollar industry and I'm going to get 5%. So you're none the wiser, really, by the end of it. And then you start this interrogation and fighting between the dragons. I was the female that was four other men. I always say I would have had more fun flushing my money down the toilet than some of the investments I made. That's the truth. The heartache of working with somebody who just doesn't get it, keeps wanting to tinker at the back end, especially software people. You know, great idea. Take it to market. Second round, third round funding. They're still tinkering with the code and not happy with, oh, I I could write a book actually about the horror of the the bad ones. Nonetheless, I never talk about them. I always talk about the great ones that make loads of money. Of course. (laughs) I do do have some, you know, I invested in uh, a great engineer and he's phenomenal and uh, children's clothing and things I would never have done, you know. So it really got me out of my comfort zone. I always say, you know, if you think of Malcolm Gladwell and the the 10,000 hours, At some point recently, I was doing that exercise of how many hours have I actually spent doing strategy and business advice with businesses. And wow, it's way over 10,000 hours, I can assure you. (laughs) So it's it's a skill. (laughs) Yes, it is. And and it's amazing when you start adding up that time, how much you see that you've really invested, isn't it? Yeah. People think that we're overnight successes and... It's a long ways from that, isn't it? All these nice circles under our eyes. Yes, I hear you. I hear you. big supporter of women. And I'm curious, what drives this passion for you? And after you tell me that, I want you to also share with me, what would you say to other women about supporting each other? First of all, mentorship is tremendously important to me and has become more and more important. Because when people say to me, what were your great mentors when you're going through your career? I make it up. 
because I didn't have any mentors. No woman of my age did. There was no such thing. What I'm usually describing is a conversation. And maybe I had two or three very powerful conversations with people who did change the course of my life. And, you know, somebody who gave me the confidence that I didn't have myself or acted as an ambassador for me or a sponsor or helped me to get up on the mountain when I was down and all the bumps in everyday life and couldn't see where I was going. And I always felt like if one conversation with somebody could actually help me to change the course of my life, imagine if I did that a little bit more deeply. So I started to do lots of different mentorship programs, some of them globally, some of them with very well-known international businesses and companies. But it wasn't until I came across Vital Voices that I understood how different mentorship could be. So Vital Voices was set up by Hillary Clinton and Madeleine Albright, and its headquarters in Washington. I actually met them in Northern Ireland when we were doing a conference and I was speaking for them. And I was really bowled over by this very simple idea that they supported a woman anywhere in the world, not an organization or a group, but they find that one woman who can be a change agent, who can be a catalyst, who can make a difference. And they support her through training, through mentoring, you know, through skills development, through funding. But all along, not in the short term, they help that woman. And by helping her, will she help other women farmers, women who stand for election in developing countries? This really struck a chord with me. I got very involved with them then. And I work primarily on, as you know, economic empowerment, something I've always felt, regardless as to where you live in the world, if I can help you get up on your own two feet and uh, to be your own boss when you can't get a boss, then that's a really great thing I can give you. So I am a global ambassador for them, and I sit on the European board. I'm very involved with the US side. And the one great thing is I have mentees all over the world, great woman and a wonderful woman, actually, in uh, Delhi, who she had a business called On Hotel, which is like a very cool Airbnb. If you go to Delhi or India, look up on hotel after the pandemic is over because you can stay in beautiful homesteads in the forests and the mountains and the lakes, all organized by Shilpi Singh and her husband. And of course, that fell out of the sky, you know, in March last year. We had already started to work with Times of India and Trailfinders and others. So now we flipped Shilpi's business into a, a digital studio, Studio 4, if you follow me on social media, I'm always talking about it. The other woman, and I have 20, and I'm only going to give you two because they're very powerful examples as to why it works. Ada Bakri is from Ethiopia, and her father actually grew up in a mud hut, and he now works for the UN in Addis Ababa. Uh, Ada's mother was French, so she got educated in uh, Belgium, and she now has a very cool boutique agency in the EU, in Brussels, working for EU regulations. Primary focus when I took her on as a mentee last year was the shipping industry, primarily around oil spillages. So that has been a huge issue in terms of regulation across the US and the EU with various instances and spillages. Shipping week was actually in February, just towards the beginning of March, I was over with Ada in Brussels to do it. What happened? The whole shipping industry gone, stranded all over the world. So Ada has completely moved her business towards sustainable development goals. Yesterday, I was on a webinar called Taking the Thread Out of Fashion, and that was about the circular economy of textiles, all of the new regulations coming down about what we wear being durable, reselling it, renting it, reusing it. So her business has swiveled completely. So why was it different? I intensively mentor Shilpi and Ada. I spent, you know, Ada got another contract the other day. You'd swear I got that contract. I was on such a high. We spend a lot of time working together, especially around issues around adaptability. Both of those women, through mentorship, were able to swivel really quickly out of the pandemic 
into businesses that actually are making far more for them than the businesses they had before. Compared to other people, certainly female and male founders that I work with who don't have that ability, they're still clinging on to whatever it is they had before the pandemic, and they hope that the world will change rather than them having to change. So for me, mentorship, by the way, who gets it gets a very bad rap because it's done so badly, mostly. I mean, I always say what's worse than no mentor is a bad mentor. That's a really bad idea. I just wanted to say one final note and add about it's one of those things that is developed in mythology that women who become powerful don't actually like other women. If I go and speak at a conference, usually the first woman to put up her hand will be a young woman saying, I have a woman boss and she hates me. She doesn't want me to progress. And, you know, I say, this is not my experience. I probably am better connected with female CEOs and women in successful positions across Ireland, the UK and Asia. I have never met a woman at my level that doesn't double time in terms of helping other women. You know, not only does she do her own job, speak on behalf of women, usually in the media um, at conferences, at policy discussions and debates, she also invests time in helping other people. I myself, every step up I took, I put my hand down and helped somebody to come after me. Why wouldn't you look at the journey I had to make, you know, blundering my way through so many different things to get where I am? But, you know, part of that is that the authenticity of being honest. I don't want young women to think I was being down out of outer space as a perfectly formed CEO. I want them to know I went through all of those things that, you know, the failures and the pitfalls they all happen to me as they will happen to them. And the most important thing is to learn to adapt through those failures, you know. Get up and dust yourself off. That's it. Yeah, we have back we in both the have a lot of skin knees from those kinds of things, don't we? <laughs> and from learning to cycle again. Yes, and learning to cycle again. Yes, yes. So I have one last question for you. Women often don't speak up for what they want and need. So have you ever struggled with this yourself, Nora? Oh, yeah, enormously. Um, I was the only female CEO in Smurfits. You know, when I was going through my corporate period, there was 46 companies in the European division. I was the only woman and there was a lot more globally and everything got addressed to dear gentlemen and Nora. So I know how <laughs> difficult it was true. And and although I would always say about Smurfits, the Smurfit Kappa Group, it's called now, uh, that they never actually you know held me back. They just judged me on my profits. You know, they never judge me on my gender or anything else. It was always about profits, but it is very difficult. If you're in a room full of men, predominantly who come from the same, I'm sure it's true in the US, same school, same background, same golf club, same rugby. They all know each other. They've known each other forever, you know, and you're the new woman and you come in, you know, I would over-prepare. And then I did this terrible thing. I call it announcing your credentials. So I'd want to make a point, but I have to tell them how important I am before I make the point. You know, and I've studied this and I have a PhD and 10 PhDs and you should listen to me because I have, it's almost an apology exercise. As I go on in life, all my work with Planet Woman, which is my own digital learning platform, is is for 23 to 33 year old women. In my experience, you know, everyone always says it, it's confidence, not competence. We're raising girls coming out of university that are better skilled, better exam results than young boys. And yet that elusive corner office in the sky that I talked about is still far away for them. You know, half of them have gone by the time they're 33. So I don't think women who are going to women's networking breakfasts and superpower lunches, they don't need me. They are already on a growth mindset. You know, women who are on the trajectory, they're already on the ladder. There's a lot of young women in that 23 to 33 age group who don't even know where the ladder is, you know, and we lose them to the professions, to academia, to medicine, to the corporate world. 
and actually bolstered by the fact that Harvard recently did a huge study, an enormous study of, of men and women, and, and discovered that it is that age group where women suffer the most. So we have a lot of you know confidence issues with young girls in their 20s, and we have a lot of overconfident boys in the same cohort. And then when you reach 40, confidence levels equal between women and men. So, you know, they're as confident as each other. And by the way, when you get over 50, and certainly when you get to 60, women's confidence is far higher than men's. So there's something to look forward to. And that's my experience too, is that men somehow lose confidence a little bit as they reach middle ages. And women seem to blossom. Maybe the children are raised and they're finally in their own, you know, zen. Maybe they're through the menopause and all the horror that their hormones throw at them. (laughs) Perhaps so. And maybe they just don't care anymore. (laughs) Maybe they just don't care anymore, yeah. (laughs) But there's something to be said for that. So, So, Nora, is there anything about your journey to greatness that we haven't covered that you'd like to share with other women? I guess I think I wrote a book. I'm always writing. So I have two books in the go at the moment. But the one book that I wrote after my husband died, you know, a few years ago, and he was young, 48. We had everything in front of us. And it was probably the hardest thing I have ever had to deal with in my life, because even though my sister died just before him, my father, good friends, I think I always had Richard next to me. You know, he helped me get over my first husband, Peter. He was he was the one person who was always next to me, always, you know, he worked for the BBC for 20 years, but ditched it in order to help me in the business. You know, at that point, you have to remember, people always imagine that, you know, somebody like me who goes on to be an angel investor or an entrepreneur, that, you know, I've already said, I grew up in a socially disadvantaged environment. So I went to school for socially disadvantaged children. I didn't have a silver spoon and all the way through my life. I just fought for everything I had myself. So when it came to buying my own business, to doing the management buyout, we'd mortgaged our house about four times at that point, you know. So everything in our life was the two of us together. And suddenly this big boulder just dropped in front of me when he died. And I couldn't even imagine my own future. I think most Saturday nights, myself and Richard would sit with a bottle of wine and um, imagine what the next chapter would be. All of the heartache that we'd gone through, all of the hard work and the effort and where in the world would we go and So that was all gone. And so was him. And I did find solace going back into TV and radio. And, you know, you can already tell that my default position has been a a workaholic and then some, you know. So I think the comedians were saying there's loads of jobs in Ireland. It's just that Nora Casey has them all. I was kind of hosting breakfast shows and afternoon shows, Dragon's Den at the weekend, you know. I think what I learned from that, which is the biggest learning experience I put into a book and a TED talk, and And I think my moral imperative is there's so many Richards out there, you know, who died too young. He didn't achieve what he wanted to achieve in his life. So many other people in hospices, you know, through ability issues, through health issues, mental health issues. There's women in Sierra Leone that aren't worried like I am right now that my son is not studying in his online lecture theater. (laughs) They're worried about, you know, clean water and food for their children. So I'm very privileged to be able to be here, you know, in the full of my health and you know, if I feel like I need to drive myself, it's because I think I should. I should actually, my moral imperative is that I should get the best out of life. I should do the best. I should finish those books, do that podcast, do those documentaries. I worry sometimes time will run out before I've done everything that I need to do. But at the end of the day, when I give testimony and at even on TV here, people would say, why did you talk about domestic abuse so honestly? Well, first, I didn't talk about it until 2017. So that's quite a long stretch of keeping it to myself. And then when Richard died, by default, 
you know, I spoke about grief, which we never talk about. What three days? You can have three days off to get over your bereavement and come back to work and, you know, bram, you're going to be fantastic again. That just doesn't happen to most of us. So talking honestly about them is my gift, I guess, because I grew up in a society where we didn't talk about things. We didn't talk about child sexual abuse, clerical abuse, homosexuality. Um, We didn't talk about mental health issues or alcoholism. We hid it under the carpet. We never talked about it. And where did that get us as a society? And then some very brave people in the last few years have started talking about sexuality, about mental health issues, about suicide, suicide awareness, about clerical abuse. Here we're having huge amounts of testimony about women who grew up in these mother and baby homes and um, all of the tragedy that was befallen upon them in their lifetime. So when I give testimony, it's because that's my gift to the next generation, not to bury it, not to say that grief is okay, because it really isn't. And not to say that uh, domestic violence is something that we shouldn't talk about, when, especially when there are so few women who can't talk about it, who have to remain silent. When I did the TED Talk on domestic violence, I was the second woman in TED to have, as a survivor, to be able to talk because there are so many women who can't speak. That's my advice. Be honest. Be, be yourself. Honest. Be authentic. And, yeah, and grab life. You know, grab life and live it to the full because, right. you know, it's a good, bad and ugly of it. Yeah. yeah, the good, bad, and ugly of it. So, Nora, thank you so much for being so open with your wisdom and your gold nuggets. You have so much to share. I wish we had two more hours to talk because there's so much more I could pull out of you. But thank you for taking time to be here with me today. Thank you, Anesh. And Nora is another great example of how women are challenging the norm, making things happen, and demanding their own greatness. So join me next time on the World's Greatest Women Show as another powerful woman story unfolds. 